the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And good evening, one and all, and welcome to the Exxon. My name is Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I'm your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum here in this place that I call the Exxon. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And the Exxon comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern, right here from the broadcast center of the Exxon Broadcast Network in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. Now, if you'd like to send me an email, it's very simple, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, TV. And uh, if you'd like to see the broadcast schedule of the Exxon Broadcast Network and see when and where you can listen to the Exxon Radio and TV show, visit www.xzbn.net. Well, another day, another dollar. COVID is running crazy here in the province of Ontario. They officially put us in a second wave of COVID today with over 700 new cases over the last uh, 24 hours. And in the province of Quebec, the numbers are higher. And uh, officials are saying with the new computer simulation that they have, we should be reaching over 1,000 new cases a day by the end of the week. Who knows what's going to happen? You know, If anybody would have told me a year ago that we'd be in a pandemic, and if any, I would have laughed. If anybody would have told me six months ago, or even three months ago, or even two months ago, that we'd be looking at a second wave, I wouldn't have been so surprised. So please, whoever you are, wherever you are, to all the members of the Exxon Nations, Friends and families, stay healthy and take care of yourselves, please. My guest this hour is J.W. Ocker. He is the Lovell Thomas and Edgar Award-winning author of Macabre Travelogues, Spooky Kids Books, and Horror Novels. His books include A Season with the Witch, The Magic and Mayhem of Halloween in Salem, Massachusetts, Death and Douglas, Twelve Nights at the Rotter House, and his latest, Cursed Objects, Strange but True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items. 
Uh, JW lives in New Hampshire, and you can visit his website at www.oddthingsiveseen.com. And JW, welcome to the X-Zone. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. It's great having you with us, uh, JW. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and what was it that drew you to this weird, strange, wonderful world that you and I call home? <laughs> you know what? I think it's because I found a lot of the world in my life boring, <laughs> not, not very interesting. So obviously I turned toward things that were a little bit more magical, a little bit weirder, a little bit stranger, a little bit off the wall, Right. just because it, it seems like those things are just more fun to spend time on. Now, have you had any strange, weird, or otherwise known as wonderful experiences in your life? Here's, here's, well, here's, I give you a disappointing answer to that question. Okay. The answer is no, unfortunately. But um, I always say it's only because I just haven't had the experience. For some reason, the paranormal doesn't like me as much as I like it. Oh. So I, I haven't gotten any good experiences. But that doesn't really change like how much I love the stories. I love the stories. I'll search them out. I've spent, you know, I've done all the requisite things you're supposed to do to see mm -hmm. the paranormal. I, you know, stayed the night in abandoned asylums and jails and cemeteries and all that kinds of stuff. But for some reason, they just won't, you know, Casper won't say hi to me. So I just, I just keep kind of keep going, seeing weird stuff and hoping one day it'll get weirder for me. Yeah, you know what? I, I appreciate that because I have the same problem. You know, people tell me I've, I've gone on ghost hunts. I've gone on research things. I've gone on UFO watches and now <clears throat> yeah, still looking. <laughs> right, right. Still looking. Uh, tell us a little bit about your new book, uh, the, let me see, um, Strange Ob uh, you know, what's Cursed Objects, Strange But True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items. What was the inspiration behind this book? So the, the inspiration behind this book was that I feel like cursed objects in the paranormal world are kind of not really paid attention to. They're not as interesting mm. as, like, the word haunted, for instance, right? So. Uh, we, we, me and my editor thought it was a good idea to go after this segment because, again, the, we looked around the literature. Nobody had really amassed all the stories of the most infamous cursed objects. Most, you know, very superficially and then like, yeah. you know, listicles online, just the mm -hmm. top ten cursed objects or whatever. And it really, you know, some of the stories are fascinating. So it just feel like it was a hole in the paranormal literature to have all these histories together in one book. So that's what we uh, went after. Okay, here's another yes-no question, okay? Do you believe in cursed objects? Are they real or are they something that a person just imagines that it's cursed, filled with coincidences or synchronicities? <laughs> I don't really I don't have an I don't have a yes no answer for that, but I will okay. say going into this book, I would have said no. Uh -huh. They're just, you know, made up in people's minds and stuff. But then by the end of the book, I learned about the concept of nocebos. Do you know about nocebos? Unless it's like a placebo, no, I don't. It's exactly it's a, it's the exact opposite of a placebo. So really, a placebo. Um, so that was a good insight there. A placebo is basically the body tricking itself into healing itself on a very minor pretense. Right. right? Just the doctor saying this, this will help you. Mm -hmm. A nocebo is the body harming itself on a very minor pretense. Oh. So a doctor can give you medicine and say, hey, hey, this medicine has these side, bad side effects. You'll hallucinate. You'll break break out in hives. You'll have headaches. And even if the medicine doesn't actually have those side effects, your body can trick itself into having those side effects. So, you know, anthropologists have used this idea to say this is why zombie or voodoo death happens, why people can think they're zombies and start becoming listless and, you know, uncommunicative and lose their appetites because their body has tricked them into doing that. So I think there's enough, you know, there's enough of a scientific veneer around this that a cursed object could actually bring harm to somebody if they, you know, 
thought it would. So it's almost it's almost a mental th- it is a mental thing, but it still doesn't negate the idea that a cursed object can actually harm you. So you know, so that's just like that would just be like a talisman that brings you good luck. Exactly, it's exactly gotcha. what that is. If you if you believe in the good luck charm, good uh-huh. luck can happen to you. Just just it's just a fact of science and and mysteries of the brain. It, it it's not paranormal necessarily, yep. but it, it it works. So. You know, it's exactly like that, which, again, is terrifying because cursed objects could be, you know, your your chair. <laughs> your chair could be the most mundane object can be cursed and just slip into your house. So knowing that and your your, your brain, if the paranormal explanation mm-hmm. is, is true, then that's it. But if the scientific explanation is true, you're still kind of screwed both sure. directions about, with cursed objects. But isn't that the premise behind the gypsy curse? I think so. Yeah, the, the evil eye on those things are that... You know, you you will. You know, if you, the the brain's powerful, the brain is, is also an agent against itself often <laughs> in thought and 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 in action. And you know, again, thinking you're in a bad place mm-hmm. will put you in a bad place every single time. I remember my wife telling our kids, "If you confess it, you will possess it." And I would say, That's "What good. the hell does that mean?" Well, she said, "Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm just giving stuff. I'm just giving them the, you know, the the ability to." And I said, "Ah, oh, wish upon a star." She said, oh, do you have to talk like that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> you know, if you want to get woo, I'll get woo with you. But, you know, the premise, <laughs> as I saw it happening and working with the children in a positive effect, in a positive manner where they were using this, if you confess it, you will possess it, um, attitude in their schoolwork. Like it was, my God, they are smart. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm firmly in the belief that tricking your brain is the yeah. way to succeed at anything, really. Yeah, just like the media does these days. <laughs> that's another thing, yeah, yeah. sure. No, no, Craig, I will not get into the de- debate that's going to be happening tomorrow. Everybody else is covering that. We won't hear. But it is going to be a paranormal event. <laughs> One talking off out of the grave and the other talking out of his butt. No, 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 let's not go there. Um what kind of what kind of uh, research did you do for your book? Did you actually go out and and seek uh, these cursed objects? Oh, totally. So yeah. I, because I I've made kind of a semi career at searching out weird sites and places already, I'd actually visited a lot of what's in the book just even before I started the project, and that's one of the reasons why the publisher brought it to me because I right. knew my my past. But basically, it was going out and seeing what I could see. It was doing a lot of research, buying a lot of books, going into libraries, all the usual kind of research you would do. And then I also went as far as to buy a cursed object and bring one into my house oh, during really? the entire project. Yeah. Tell us about that. Tell us about that. Sure. So th- there's a whole section in the book about the business of cursed objects, mm-hmm. how you know there's lots of museums that make a lot of money off cursed objects, and there's an, an entire trade of cursed objects on the good old eBay. If you like, type it in right now, I guarantee you that there'll be you know, two dozen cursed dolls and cursed trinkets and cursed boxes uh-huh. all over the place. So I bought one of those. Um, it came with a lot of warnings. Mine was a little brass bulldog and a paperweight. And I call it the cursed cur because all the best um, cursed objects that are worth their salt have some kind of cool name that sounds like it's out of a Sherlock Holmes title, right? Right. So Sherlock Holmes in the case of the cursed cur. Um, yeah, so I bought it on eBay. It came with a lot of warnings from the seller. She or, she, or, she or he, I'm not sure, uh, emailed me lots of warnings, let me know, you know I was taking on a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. When it came in the box, it was scrawled all over the box, all of these kind of warnings and, and potents. <laughs> And, you know, it, it, was a, it was an experience, which I think yeah. in reality was what I was buying. I don't think probably either one of us thought this thing was cursed. But, right. you know, when you think in the movies, when they buy cursed objects, it's always at some, you know, dim antique store, maybe in Chinatown with, like, 
tons of objects that the shopkeeper won't sell you or <laughs> yeah. tries not to sell you. Uh, but today we don't have that. We have one-click purchases online. So to make up for that, you know, the person that sold me this this dog was, you know, trying to give mm-hmm. me experience. Lots of warnings by email. Lots of warnings in the box. Just enough so I could so I could start actually feeling trepidatious, which I did. I started being like, wait, is this going too far? Bringing one into my house, whether I believe it or not, is that a step too far? Um, so that's what I did. And I, I kept it on my desk the entire time. I took it with us on vacation. We went down to Florida for a week with that thing in my bag. Um, uh, so you're responsible happened. for the lousy weather down there. Gotcha. <laughs> possible, possible. But to me, it was fine. It was one of my better years, actually. So I don't know if I, you know, I, I keep telling people that it's a dog. So it takes dogs a long time to kind of get used to their environment and be in themselves. <laughs> so maybe one day you know, <laughs> that, that cursed dog will really bite me in the ass, you know. But but has anything negative happened? No. Um, I mean, not to me personally. No. It seems like the world's a lot of negative things happening in the world right now. But I can't again. But also, this might be my own mental state, kind of um, filtering it out and not, not, you know, being blind to the bad things that mm-hmm. have happened. But I would say, you know, the past year and a half that I've been working on the project, it's been good times for me. It, again, personally, <laughs> not in any other way. Well, let's see. You bought it. If anything was going to happen in, in the way I look at it, it would have happened to you. Nothing's happened, so I think we could kind of uh, say, well, this cursed object really isn't cursed. Very possible. It could even be blessed, like you were saying earlier. Yeah. I might have got the wrong label. I hope that you did, and I hope that your, <laughs> you know, that that the, your good luck continues and your writing continues, and they keep on getting nominated for awards. And uh, congratulations! Let me see you. You've uh, been awarded the Edgar Award for Mystery Writers of by Mystery Writers of America, Lowell Thomas Gold Award, Society of American Travel Writers, and the Lowell Thomas Silver Award. Again, by the Society of American Travel Writers. And congratulations on all those awards. Thank you. Yeah, I've been very fortunate as far as that goes. JW, please stand by. You and I have to take our first break. And Exxon Nation, if you'd like to find out more about our guest of this hour, his website is oddthingsiveseen.com. That's www.oddthingsiveseen.com. And JW and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the X-Zone with yours truly, Rob McConnell from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, you can always find out what's happening on the X-Zone broadcast network by going to www.xzbn.net. And for uh, the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV, which is available on Roku and some other great platforms, visit www.simultv.com. Hey, gang, October is Halloween month here in the Exxon, and we have a month jam-packed. We have uh, people from all over Canada, the United States, who are going to talk to us about haunted ghosts, things that go bump in the night in the Halloween spirit. Don't go away. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Money 
Welcome back, everyone. J.W. Walker is our special guest. His website is oddthingsivesseen.com. Um, besides the dog that you bought, no, the cursed dog that you bought, uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how to explain that. Um, where else did you visit, and what other strange, weird, bizarre, cursed objects did you uh, research for your book? Well, I went... I went to the kind of granddaddy of them all, the Hope Diamond, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the iconic cursed object. It's it's small. It can get lost. It can get stolen. It's very expensive. So only like the richest people with the, you know, most um, decadent lives have it in their in their lives, and has a very long history, a very long both paranormal and historical um, legacy. And it's just sitting in Smithsonian D.C., like in a little glass case in the middle of a room, just spinning around. And it's one of the more popular um, exhibits there. Um, and I grew up in D.C., so I grew up visiting this thing all the time. And there was always a crowd around it, always kind of you to like kind of hacksaw your way to it. But it, it mm-hmm. represents the most cursed object in kind of the history of the lore. And yet here it is, kind of just shimmering under a light uh, in the nation's capital. Well, would you be able to give our listeners a little bit of the history of the Hope Diamond and and then a little bit of the cursed hope diamond uh, tragedy or trilogies sure i mean they're really entwined uh, you know the other thing i like about the hope diamond is it's not a lot of the lore a lot of the lore isn't made up it's just okay. you know they're, they're facts in the case mm-hmm. as opposed to some of these cursed objects where they have a real history that are documented and then stories kind of wound around that but it, it's centuries old it started out in uh, indian mines uh, which were most you know the most gemstones um hundreds of years ago started there because we only thought diamonds were in india at the time so it started there, a merchant bought it, and went to the French royalty, so it became one of the French crown jewels. It's oh, It was cut down over the years, and you know, it, it was a giant rock, and then it became like a nice, elegant you know, stone over the years. It was smuggled out of France, ended up in England at some point, um, went to a jeweler, a jeweler, Cartier, the famous Cartier oh, yeah. uh, of Cartier Diamonds. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of the guy that really hooked the mess, hooked, he hooked the kind of curse really around it. The, the curse around the Hope Diamond was kind of there, uh, it had been printed about in newspapers and such, but it came to America when Evelyn Walsh, who was a socialite in D.C., you know, she was buy- she was rich, wealthy, buying lots of stuff, and he wanted to sell her the, her his Hope Diamond, but you know, she had diamonds. She had a, a tub full of diamonds. She didn't need more diamonds. She wanted something a little more exotic than that. So he, hey, this thing is cursed and has wrapped all these stories around it. How you know um, the all the royalty that died. So the French Revolution was kind of caused by the Hope Diamond. Uh, the royalty at that time both had their heads cut off because they wore the Hope Diamond. Um, it had, you know, caused ruin to every kind of merchant who picked it up. It had been stolen from the eye of an idol uh, out of, out of uh, India, which wasn't true. It had just been kind of bought after it was mined. And uh, Evelyn Walsh liked it so much that she bought the bought the diamond. And then her life ended in a lot of tragedy. Her and her husband both divorced. They both ended up in asylums, uh, died there. They had a child that um, died of suicide. So. They're, they were huge, wealthy socialites in D.C., but their lives completely ended in tragedy. And, but she was the most like known person to have the diamond. She would wear it to parties. She turned it into a, a, a crown in her head. She let her pet wear it at one point. Um, she tried to sell it to fund the search for the Lindbergh baby. Mm-hmm. So it was a very, she, she brought very, a lot of promise to it, and then, of course, her life ended that, that way. Um, then it was sold to a couple of families, the Hope families, who bought it eventually. That's who, who it's named after. Right. Um, and then they... Had a lot of, uh, you know, bankruptcies, as rich people do. They go through a lot of bankruptcies, so that's blamed a lot on the Hope Diamond. And then eventually it was given to the Smithsonian 
for, you know, a tax break at the end of the day or to start an American crown jewels. So it's a long history and pretty much every single cursed gem. I, I outline about eight different cursed gems in the book, and all of them have basically the same story. They start in India. They go through um, a merchant. They end up in somebody's crown jewels, whether it's the French, the English, the Scottish, the Russian. And then they end up going overseas to the American aristocracy often, which is, you know, businessmen and actors. That's who the American aristocracy is. And then they all end up in museums. So right now, if you want to go see Cursed Gems, there's seven of them in museums, open to the public. And then the one, the Black Orloff, is in private hands right now. But the rest of them are just on display, the most museum in the world. So let me ask you this. Is it the owner of the object who is cursed, or is it people who view the object that can also be cursed? Oh, this is a great question. I love this question. So... The owner is traditionally kind of the one that's supposed to be cursed. Yeah. But according to the stories, it's anybody who shows an interest. So right now, like me being a journalist around this topic, yeah. you know, there's lots of journalists who are in the curse story. Um, researchers, the Atsi, uh, the Iceman, Atsi the Iceman out in Italy, is right. a cursed object. All of his victims are scientists who are just kind of researching him. Some of them weren't even directly researching. They were just kind of researching him um, secondhand. So literally just showing an interest. Photographers have the unlucky mummy in the British Museum has been photographed, and the photographer is supposed to have died. So showing an interest, which is exactly what the book is, showing an interest. And by the way, you know, interviewing a person who wrote about a book about cursed objects is also showing an interest in the topic. So we're, we're all kind of at, at um, harm here. We're all in danger talking about the topic a little bit. So as well as the people who go to the Smithsonian to see it. Yes. My yes, goodness. Exactly. Uh, the, a plate of glass doesn't shield you from the curse just because, you know, it's on exhibit. Hmm. Funny, you can get bulletproof glass, but you can't get curse-proof glass. No, no, you need uh, some kind of a counter-curse or a blessing to, get, to escape this. Weren't there curses um, associated with the the um, the tomb of uh, Tutankhamun? Yes, yes, a great curse. That's one, yeah. uh, if, the, if the Hope Diamond's the granddaddy, this is the other granddaddy. Um, this is another one I got to see a lot of the... I went to Egypt at one point, not for the book, but way in my past where I got to see the, a lot of the... Tutankhamun uh, artifacts, right? But this was a huge one. This is one that kind of um, made curse. So it wasn't the first cursed mummy to ever come out of, of Egypt, but it was the one that kind of popularized it in the early 20th century. Without this mummy, we wouldn't have you know Boris Karloff shambling around um, in Hollywood. It um, it basically killed visitors, killed people involved with the dig, anybody that kind of you know it's it's a Cursed objects aren't automatic. Like they're kind of sometimes selective, selective in who gets harmed. I mean, really? which, is, which which makes sense. It doesn't. They don't follow rules. It just whatever. Whoever gets harmed gets harmed. But the beauty of the um, Tutankhamun tomb and Tutankhamun artifacts curse is it all started because of a shaving accident. A they, shaving um, accident. You mean as in somebody shaving their face? Exactly. Exactly. Huh. So what happened was so they found they knew that. King Tut was around. The boy king was somewhere in the sand. They knew that. And they'd been searching for him for years. And they finally found him. Um, and the person who funded the dig, Lord Carnivon, he's the one who funded the dig mm -hmm. and helped open the tomb. And they found it. They eventually, um, after kind of digging through and finding that it was untouched and there were treasures in there, they had to seal up the tomb for the season. I guess, I guess um, Egypt has archaeological seasons. I don't know if it's weather-based or legal-based. But they had, to, they had to cover up the tomb and come back next season. So while he was waiting, he went to Aswan. And um, while he was there, oh, something else I should say. So he sold the exclusive rights to cover the Tutankhamun uncovering um, to the Times in London. So they're the only ones allowed in the tomb up close. Every other reporter had to stay out behind, you know, the velvet rope, the tourists and everybody else 
only one paper had access. So anyway, during the off season, he was in Oswan, and he got by a mosquito. Mm-hmm. While he was shaving one morning after that mosquito bite, he nicked it and then caught blood poisoning and died. Um, so he died before they even found the body of King Tut. He saw only the treasures and the tomb. He didn't get to see the body. But what that did was all those newspapers that couldn't get the couldn't get a story because they were out, they weren't allowed inside. Didn't need to be inside anymore. They had a story. They had the curse of the pharaohs. Lord Carnivon, who is the one that funded this dig, is the first victim. And again, all because he was shaving one morning and wasn't careful around his mosquito bite. Can you imagine being there? Anybody that died connected to it is a curse. Can you imagine uh, being a child in Egypt and your mother says, "Go outside and play in the sand." Where the hell did this kid go? (laughs) I don't know. That just popped in my head when you were saying something about the sand. My mind went to the kid in the sand and how, I wonder how many kids got lost in Egypt because their parents told them to go play in the sand. Um, so basically, it's the people who create the story about the cursed object who actually curse it. Yeah, in many, in many ways. And I think that's kind of one of the values of cursed objects. Again, whether you believe in the paranormal or don't. Yeah. The value of cursed objects is it's a physical thing to wrap stories around. So like Evelyn Wash, who we just talked about with the mm-hmm. whole diamond, yeah. most of us wouldn't know her story at all. It wouldn't even be a blip on our radar if it wasn't for the hope diamond around her neck, right? So a lot of people's stories that we just forget about or, you know, seem minor are, are you know, stuck to a cursed object somewhere and, and kind of keep are, keep are able to keep being retelled. They're all tragedies, of course. Yeah. All, those, all these stories are tragedies. But, you know, again, the, the cursed object keeps them alive. So it also keeps us attached to that point in history. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, the, the starting point of cursed mm-hmm. objects is important. Where they are in the history is super important um, to the point that you know, it can get ridiculous. Like, the Unlucky Mummy, which is a mummy board, the top of a sarcophagus, not even a mummy. It's just the top lid that's shaped mm-hmm. like a mummy. Yes. Uh, it's in the British Museum, but it's been around so long that they've blamed the Titanic uh, on it, they blamed World War II on it. They blamed every, all these visitor deaths on it. It's 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 like it's you, if you're around long enough and you're prominent enough, you're kind of touching all of history in, in a certain kind of way. You know, I was just going to ask you about any cursed objects that are associated with the Titanic, and then I remembered reading something about part of the Tutankhamun exhibition was on the Titanic. Am I correct? Yeah, that's the story. I don't think there was actually any mummies in the Titanic, but there are there are ton, there are probably three or four stories about three or four different mum, mummy object, objects mm-hmm. that were supposed to be stored in the hold, and you know cause it to go down. What always comes out though is you know if it went down with a ship, it's not around anymore, right? Exactly. You know, the, the, the unlucky mummy's still around. All the Tutankhamun artifacts are still around. So in the in the unlucky mummy story, it, it sinks the Titanic, but somehow survives, goes to America for a while, then comes back to um, Europe but sinks the ship that takes it back to Europe, which is another big tragedy. I can't remember the name of the ship offhand, but it was another big um, uh, naval, naval tragedy. And then ends up in a museum behind glass that any one of us can go see if we're in London. So it, it's, it's a really hard one where if you sink a ship, you're probably not going to be around anymore. So, but then you lose that artifact and can't tell a cool story around it. So how do, you, how do you thwart the effects of a cursed object? Is there any way of exercising it? Yeah, I mean, it depends on who you're talking to. One of the people I've uh, interviewed in the past is John Zaffis. He's yeah. famous for his interest in haunted objects and cursed objects. He had a show on the Sci-Fi Channel called The Haunted Collector, mm-hmm. where he would go to people's houses, but instead of, you know, finding the ghosts, like most of those reality shows, he would find the object that was causing all the kind of harm. And the way he did it, so he takes those objects and puts them in his house, basically. He has a house behind his house that he stores all of his collection. And the way he de... Uh, I can't remember the term he uses, but basically the way he uh, unenergizes it is through... 
Um, prayer, sunlight, salt, um, crystals. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so a lot of new age stuff. And then he says that if he can't actually deactivate it, that's what it is, activation. If he can't actually deactivate it, then he'll throw it in the ocean. <laughs> that usually does a good job of deactivating it. But other ways are all the counter curses, right? So the evil eye can be a curse, but it can also be a protection symbol. Um, and there's, I, do a, I do a small section in the book about blessed objects, which is ways to fend off curse. That could be anything from a Catholic relic, you know, to even a lot of the voodoo objects are both cursed objects, but also protection, protection objects. Got about a minute before we have to go to our news break at the bottom of the hour, but what part of the effectiveness of a, of a cursed object is either thwarted or amplified by a person's religious beliefs? Good question. It really depends on. I guess it can give an intelligence, right? So somebody that somebody from a you know um, a Protestant or Catholic background would want to ascribe some kind of intelligence to the object, yeah. right? Make it a possessed object or a haunted object. Um, while others more, you know, th that don't have such a belief in those kind of entities, entities would think of a cursed object as just a, a th some, something malignant, something that kind of absorbed, you know, dark energy and is now kind of projecting it out into the universe. So it kind of just, it kind of, I guess, probably depends on whether you want to personify it or not personify it. All right, uh, J.W., please stand by. You and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. And Nation, our guest this hour is J.W. Ocker. And if you'd like to visit his website, www.oddthingsiveseen.com. We're talking to J.W. tonight about his latest book, and it's entitled to Cursed Objects, Strange But True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items. And we'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. You're listening to us on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talk Star Radio Network, uh, Mutual Broadcast Network, and on satellite providers and program providers around the world. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com, and to check out the broadcast schedule for the Exxon Broadcast Network and the great shows you can listen to 24 hours, 365 www.xzbn.net. And you can listen to past shows that we've done here on the X-Zone on our website, www.xzoneradiotv.com. And that's been the home of the website for the X-Zone Radio and TV show for the past 30 years. Our guest is J.W. Ocker, and uh, we're talking about cursed objects today. And uh, my producer during the break whispered in my ear, he said, yeah, my wedding ring must be a cursed object. 
Oh, gotta wonder about him. I've met his wife. During the writing of your book and doing the research for your book, was there anything that just blew you away? Something that you weren't expecting to find, but there it was. Yeah, I think so. And, it, and it, I, I would say it has to do with gold rings as well, honestly. Um, so <laughs> there, there's, a, there's this ring called the Ring of Silvianus that was mm -hmm. found in the 18th century in a farm in, in England, right? It's just a gold ring. It was a signet ring. It had a blessing engraved on it that was actually misspelled. And a person's name, which was um, Senasius, was on the actual ring. And it's, it's not a big deal for a farmer to find, you know, that kind of stuff in their fields. England has been around. <laughs> the history of England is really deep, and that island is really small. So there's just layers and layers and layers of artifacts. So he found this found this uh, ring. Uh, it got sold to a family, a nearby family, um, that you know put it on display in their house at the Vine. And then later, uh, about thirty about thirty miles away, they somebody found at a um, archaeological site called Dwarf Hill a defixio, which is a curse tablet. Basically, back then, the Romans that were in England were, would um, curse people by scribing curses into small metal tablets, very thin metal tablets, and then giving them to a temple. And this archaeological site, this Dwarf Hill, was actually a temple to the god Nodens. And they found a defixio, and it cursed a man named um, Selenius for stealing a gold ring. So here they had the gold ring with the name Selenius. Uh, I'm getting these names mixed up. Sianus. Um, and the uh, actual defixio saying Sianus. So here they had a whole like kind of curse st story. Somebody stole a ring. We found the ring. Mm -hmm. Somebody cursed somebody. We found the curse. That is kind of kind of like it blows my mind for like the age of it and how they put these pieces together. But then the real twist is that at some point in, in the 19th century, a archaeologist or an archaeologist by the name of uh, Wheeler wanted to know more about the god at this temple, Nodens. He wanted to know more about the name. It's an Anglo-Saxon kind of history to it. So he called up Oxford and was like, "Hey, I need an expert in Anglo-Saxon to tell me more about Nodens." And to come out here and kind of look at it, look at this uh, stuff for me. And he got connected with a guy named John uh, Ryder Rule Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien. So this cursed ring was introduced to J.R.R. Tolkien. About a year later, he published The Hobbit. Oh, my gosh. The ultimate cursed ring, you know, in all of fiction, right? The, yeah. It's engraved just like the ring was, this, like the ring of Sylvianus was. And uh, that, that that's like an ending. I'm like, man, that is a very, the whole story's cool, but then it ends with, oh, my goodness, that's the, that cursed ring, we've all seen that poster, right? We've all read that book, yeah. and it all starts with an actual real cursed ring out in England. You and I briefly talked about a theology and a person's beliefs, religious beliefs. Are there any curses that, that you know of that are talked about in the Bible? Yeah, the, the Bible's full of curses. I do have a bit of a religious background. Uh, I don't know if any objects were cursed. I would actually try to look through that as well. I mean, sometimes it says stuff like the... the um, What's that spear that, that pierced Christ's side? Oh, That's yeah, the, um, object. the the spear of destiny. Spear destiny, of destiny, yeah. That's one. I mean, it, does, it doesn't exist. I mean, you'll find splinters of it, I think, in about 8,000 churches across Italy, like every mm -hmm. uh, holy relic. But yep. um, there's not. There's a lot of cursing. God was a, was a curser. <laughs> he cursed entire people. He cursed, you know, uh, um, Lot's wife was a big curse. Um, right. Yeah, Adam and Eve's uh, son, uh, the one that gave the vegetable offering, that was another person that was cursed to wander the earth. So it's full of curses, but not so much cursed objects, which is kind of a, it's it's more of a, a very, it's probably a more of a modern thing, the cursed object, really. I mean, they're all ancient. A lot of the cursed objects are ancient, but actually mm -hmm. ascribing them as a cursed object in like a category is something that I think modern times we've done. In, in your opinion, is there any one group of or region of the world where curses are more predominant than others, or the belief in curses is more predominant than others? 
That's a good question. I mean, it's it's as far as curses themselves, it's probably pretty well spread. Um, just in looking through the book, you know, everybody has some kind of every cu- culture has some kind of idea of uh, a curse engraved in stone or metal. Every culture has this idea of miniature figures, you know, poppets and voodoo dolls. I think we mostly right, call yeah. them these days. But every culture has this idea that you can inflict harm or blessing using a small, uh, you know, anthropoid object. Mm-hmm. Um, cursed objects as well. I mean, it's I. I, it was pretty much spread across the world what I found as far as cursed objects were, but there's a lot in the UK. For some reason, everything goes to <laughs> everything goes to the UK as far as Western history, so I guess that makes sense. But there's a lot of stuff out there that they have. Was there anyone that you spoke to during the research for your book who actually was cursed? Hmm, I don't think so. I also don't know how many people would admit that to me. It's almost like saying, you know, you have COVID. Like, you're not going to tell people that, right? You're going to hide it until you're better, and then maybe you'll still tell me if you're like The Rock or whatever, or Tom Hanks, you'll tell people later. Yeah. But it's almost like uh, almost like a shame to be, you know, to, to believe you're cursed and to admit it to people. You, don't, you probably don't want people to know that. What was the most curious cursed object that you came across and that you wrote about in your book? Curious in what sense? Which direction are you going to send me? Well, let's see. Something that people believed was cursed, but when you yourself looked at it, went, what are you talking about? Nah. <laughs> I'm going to give you the Dybbuk box. Have you heard this one? No. So this is a pretty famous one. This is a modern era cursed object. So it is a supposed to be a Jewish wine cabinet. Uh, full of various artifacts. There's like a, a little candelabra in there, some wax, some coins, some rose petals, something like that. Um, it was put on eBay. So it's, uh, it, was, it was bought by somebody out in Oregon at an estate sale from a woman who had escaped the Holocaust. And she bought it in Italy, I believe. And then he stuff started to happen to him, like bad dreams, shadow figures, just really bad stuff. And every time he tried to give the box away to somebody, including his mom, he tried to give it to his mom. Bad stuff happened to all of them. None of them could sleep. None of them liked being around this box. So he put it on eBay, put the whole story on eBay, was completely (laughs) transparent about it. And somebody else bought it. I think it was, I can't remember his name, but it was like a college kid somewhere in in the U.S. They kept it for a while. Then, you know, they started having the same thing, shadows, headaches, just general malaise. So they put it on eBay themselves and put added their story to this cursed object. And then the third person got it, and he was a he was a, a professor. I can't remember what city he was at, but he was a professor. He made a kind of a bigger deal about the box. He made a website for it. He claimed that there was some bad stuff happening from the box, but mostly good stuff was happening to him. It was making him de-age <laughs> this Dybbuk box, and it became so famous. Like every time they sold on eBay, it would sold for more money and more money and more money. And then eventually, the last person to buy it was Zach Baggins or Baggins is his name who is the lead host of Ghost Adventures, which is a hugely popular show for the Travel Channel. He's, got, he's made multi-millions as a result. He just opened up a museum of cursed and haunted objects out in Las Vegas, which I got to visit before you know everything shut down. He has it on display, so I get to see it on display. And it's, it's in a room by itself. It's spookily lit. It's got a ring of salt and a ring of um, some kind of herb around it to keep it shut. It's in a glass case. But you walk up to it, and it's just a little box, and it's cracked open a little bit, right? So the the, the tour guide tells you, ah, uh, it's opening a little bit, and the salt is a little bit disturbed. So it's, it's, a, it's a big show around it. And it didn't look like anything. It looked like a box to me. And then digging deeper, it turns out that, A, there's no such thing as a Dybbuk box in the, in the, in the history of Jewish lore. Dybbuk is, a Dybbuk is a, basically a perverted spirit in Jewish lore. But they didn't have any kind of like genie in the bottle legends, you know, like like other ultra cultures do. So there's no such thing as a Dybbuk box in, in Jewish lore. And then on top of that, it 
probably wasn't a wine cabinet. It was, um, uh, uh, <laughs> I think it was some kind of, somebody did some research and found out it was a, because it's small, it doesn't even seem like it fits a bottle or bottles. It was a whiskey display cabinet that was made in New York uh, much later than, you know, <laughs> than the Holocaust or whatever. So there's that doubtful. And then the original person, the person in Oregon who put it on on eBay, eBay himself, it turned out he was a horror author and he oh, kind of made up the sake. whole story. So, but despite all that, it's gotten so famous that nobody cares about the the fake parts of it. So it's it's kind of taken on a life. It's a story is almost more interesting now that it's fake. But Zach Bagans, everybody who's been around it will claim it's not not fake. And in fact, the biggest story about it in recent times is Post Malone, the, the famous uh, the famous singer. There's video of him freaking out about going visiting this box by himself with Zach. Freaking out, running out. There's like black and white footage of him running out of this room, ter- terrified to death. And then over the co- course of the next few weeks, he was in a, air, a plane crash, a car crash. Somebody looted his house. <laughs> he went through a series of bad, bad situations that everybody blamed on this Divic box. So some people say, you know, it's a hoax. Mm-hmm. Some people say, well, it used to be a hoax, but now it's taken on life of its own, and now it actually is cursed. And so it's just this weird kind of twisted story that you know you can believe what you want about it, but the truth is probably. Somebody made it up, and then we all made a big deal out of it, and now it's hard to walk back that big deal. But what does this say about the paranormal itself, then? Just using this uh, this, this this cabinet as an example, where yeah. the story grows and grows and grows. But when you do the research and you actually find out the truth behind it, it's established as a hoax. Mm-hmm. So if this is being perpetrated with this one object and a curse being part of the paranormal. How does this make the world of the paranormal look to people who say, oh, if this is a hoax, just imagine how much other stuff in the paranormal is hoax, or how much stuff on those TV shows is just more hoax, poo. Yeah, I think that's completely valid. In my own my own kind of career of searching out paranormal stuff, it, it most time most of the times the story is exactly that. It's yeah. either a hoax, it's vague, you can't find the original documentation, the original stories. But I think what the paranormals would say is that that might be true of a percentage of them, even a large percentage of them, mm-hmm. but doesn't make it all untrue. And I, you know, for a, for a long time there, I was like, I kind of took that kind of rationalization with a grain of salt. But now we see in like in in non paranormal culture the same thing happening, right, with fake news. With exactly. the spread of disinformation, the spread of you know science disbelief, so you know the same thing is happening in non-paranormal circles where a lot of what you read about something is hard to believe, or if you dig deep enough, it's not true. So it's not alone in that. So it, it can take, I think, it, it can take solace in the fact that it's it's like everything else in life, a lot of BS, but who knows about the not BS part? But when it comes to the paranormal, the paranormal is a lot older than fake news is. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I think that the, the the possibility of the intent to defraud is a lot higher in the world of the paranormal than it is when it comes to fake news. And probably easier. I mean, I yeah. thought about this a few. T- I thought about this a few times in my travels, especially for cursed objects, where I know I can take. You know, I take. T- I tell the story about the cursed cur in my office here, but I could take anything in this in this room, make up a story in it, put it in this book. And honestly, no one would be the wiser. And then if I can keep that story alive long enough and get it passed around long enough and get it added to by other people long enough, it can literally live on its own. You know, it's, it, you put that little kind of seed out in the world and it can grow into this, you know, big story that lots of people believe or that some people, you know, at, at the very yes. least sit on the fence about. Don't, yeah. don't even call that as, as a as BS move on my part. So it is really easy to start lore, unfortunately. You know, I, I've often said that the belief is the strongest power in the universe. 
Because if you believe something strong enough, you can actually make it happen or convince others that it has happened. You and I have to take our uh, break in a couple of seconds, but I'd just like to remind our listeners right now that our guest this hour is J.W. Ocker. He is an author that we're talking about his book this hour entitled Cursed Objects, Strange But True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items. And his website is www.oddthingsiveseen.com. That's www.oddthingsiveseen.com. And listen, Exo Nation, uh, the month of October is traditionally... Halloween month here in the Exxon, we have ghost experts, we have haunted ghost tour uh, leaders who are going to come on and tell us about their cities and the haunted locations, and then we have some other special guests who are going to be coming on to share their own personal experiences and how Halloween has affected their life. I'm Rob McConnell, this is the Exxon, it's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard, and I'll be back with my special guest this hour, J.W. Ocker. As we wrap up this hour from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. And welcome back. I am Rob McConnell. This is the Exxon. Check us out on our website, www.exxonradiotv.com. And for all the broadcast scheduling of our many great shows on the Exxon Broadcast Network, where you can listen 724-365 with our compliments at www.xzbn.net. J.W. Ocker is our special guest this hour. His website is... OddThingsIveSeen.com, and we're talking about his most recent book this hour, entitled Cursed Objects, Strange But True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items. First of all, J.W., thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Congratulations on what I can only see as a very interesting book, but I have to ask you this. With your book, does there come a curse? There does, actually. This is something <laughs> I would really wanted to happen. <laughs> I thought about actually seeing if the publisher would allow the actual printing press to get cursed so that every book would be a cursed object. Yeah. Turned out that was a little bit hard to do, so we did the next best thing. We included in the book a book curse, which uh-huh. is something that medieval scribes used to do. So medieval scribes would take you know months to copy a book, right? Because no Xerox, no published, no, no Gutenberg press back then. Mm-hmm. They would take forever to do it. They would do it well. They would do eliminated manuscripts. And then they would try to save that book. That book was a precious resource, and there was only one copy of it. So yeah. they would you know, lock it to shelves. They would do everything physical they could do to keep that book from being stolen. But then they would also curse the book. They would put a little kind of curse in the front where anybody that stole the book, bad things would happen to them. So we took one of those curses from, from that time period and put it right in the book. So 
basically, the book isn't cursed unless you steal it. So if you steal the book, you're, the consequences are you're going to get your eyes pecked out by ravens. It's, it's, old, it's old word English, so I'm paraphrasing. You're going to get your eyes pecked out by ravens, and you're going to get hung on a gallows. That's, that's the consequences for stealing the book. If you buy it, you're fine. You're no problems at all. But if you steal it, you're, you're in a little bit of hot water. God, talk about harsh justice. Woo! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I, I'm, the, my I love it. Ravens and galluses, so. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, how many books all told have you written over the uh, over the years, Jay? Uh, Cursed Object is my seventh book. So you know, I've written four, you know, four travel, you know, four nonfiction travelogues that are all kind of spooky and macabre. Mm-hmm. And then I've written um, a children's horror novel and an adult horror novel. Excellent. Let me ask you this: as an author. When you're writing a book and you have a, a writer's block, how do you, how do you circumvent it? How do you get rid of that block? Oh, I never get those. Especially as a, as a nonfiction writer, it, the the burden is a little bit different than when you know when I had the fiction hat on. But mm-hmm. the stories I write about are out there. Like I don't have to worry about making them up on the page. The characters, the mysteries, the interests, the plot twists, they're all out there already. And all it takes is me researching. So if I don't have a topic I'm researching at the time. I mean, we live in the era of instant information. I can find yeah. something to research. There's a lot of internet holes to fall down. So it's never, a, I never have a moment where I'm like, man, I have nothing to write about. There's, I, I usually have a backlog of hundreds and hundreds of experiences that I haven't written about that I need to get to at some point, either for my website or for a book in the future. But yeah, it's not an, it's not an issue for nonfiction writers, I don't think. So how did you select the stories that you incorporated in your latest book, Cursed Objects? I, I'm sure you must have other stories that were, were not included. And what was the criteria to be in your book or to be put aside for a later project? Oh, great question. This is a good question because one of the first things I had to do was sit down and define what a cursed object was. Which sounds easy, right? We all know what a cursed mm-hmm. object is, but really, well, first of all, it had to be an object. Like I didn't want to do cur- anything. Anything can be cursed. The, the bad news is anything can be cursed. Right. A person, a place. I wanted it to be objects, not people or places, because I had the idea that you could just at any point pick up something from the flea market or an antique shop and not know it's cursed and bring it into your house. So that was my criteria as far as the object goes. And with some exceptions, it generally is true. It's chairs, it's dolls, it's that kind of thing. But cursed is hard because... You know, there's haunted objects. A lot of these lists out there list a lot of haunted objects. Mm-hmm. And, and what I found in those stories was haunted objects usually don't harm you. Haunted, you know, ghosts, do, there's not a lot of harm from ghosts. There's a lot of spooky, creepy yeah. ghosts. But a good example of that is um, the mirror at the Myrtle Plantation in Louisiana, which I've, I've been to. It, it's a cursed object, but all that happens is, you know, handprints appear in the mirror and you can see shadow people in the mirror, which is really creepy, really spooky. But it doesn't really hurt you. Uh, and cursed objects, that harm, death, or harm to your life, usually mm-hmm. it's death, but also any kind of harm, is very important to it. So it had to be a cursed object. Um, it had to be cursed. It had to hurt you. Um, it also had to kind of have a supernatural spirit to it, because, again, an object that harms you or harms lots of people, it actually needs to harm lots of people, it could be a, a gun. You know, a gun can do that. <laughs> so it had to be supernatural as well. And then that was that was the easy. But finding cur- famous cursed objects was hard. Like if I just opened it up to any cursed object story I heard anywhere, randomly, you know, from a friend online, there's a lot out there. But I wanted things with actual histories behind them. So even if you don't believe the paranormal, mm-hmm. you've got to see 100 years of history represented in one object. And there's not a lot out there. There's I, I think we found about 50. And, you know, it was hard to find those. Like some of them are pretty obvious. Like you said, King Tut, Old yes. Diamond, easy to find. 
But then we had to really, or I had to really, really dig to find, you know, Little Manny, which is this little stone uh, uh, figure out in uh, out in the UK, mm-hmm. or to talk about um, the Hexham heads. Or it, it was, it was, it, it wasn't wasn't easy to fill this book. Like if it had been a book about haunted houses, like find all the most famous haunted houses, I would need like a, a set of books yeah. <laughs> to, to write that. So we were, we came up with about fifty of them. So that kind of limited itself, and then we cut out a few that were. You know, either too vague or one that was a little bit too vicious. We, we kept the red room. We, we was a little bit too vicious. So I posted that on my website, that story. Um, but it just didn't fit the kind of the tone, which the tone is, you know, wonder, um, humor and, you know, interest in spooky things was the tone. So we didn't want to get too vicious and violent for some of this stuff. Well, you know, you talked about a haunt, uh, hauntings before. Uh, and, and this leads me to this question. Is a haunted house cursed? Where the ghosts could, or where the ghosts or the spirits or the entities just do not leave. They remain there. And you know, they make their their allegedly they make their presence known. So could we say that this house is cursed? I would so in my definitions, and the way I defined it, a haunted object could be a cursed object. But the defin the, the criteria would be that haunted house had to hurt lot multiple people. So if it wasn't actually hurting people, yeah. like literal physical harm. Or not, not physical, but like fiscal harm, any kind of harm, it's not cursed. If it's just right. spooking them or making them run out of the house or giving them white hair, yeah. it's not, not cursed. But if people died in that house, yeah, you can call that a cursed, cursed Okay, house. But, but taking the fact that the house is haunted, it may not be hurting anyone from this reality that goes into the house. But the, the fact that it keeps spirits or ghosts or whatever oh. at that location and does not let them escape. So so afterlife harm. That is interesting. Exactly. That might fall under the definition. So yeah, yeah post post death harm. Right. That might be cursed. Yeah. I mean I definitely found objects I found one object for this book that actually seemed to curse itself. Like it got it got broken more than it hurt people. So I could definitely see that as well. That's, that's an interesting. So that's an interesting twist on it. I think. Yeah, my producer said, "Yeah, there's my wedding ring again." <laughs> oh, he's going to get divorced soon. I can see that coming, and I'm not a psychic. <laughs> What's up next for you, my friend? So next, I go back to the fiction world. Um, I've got a I've got a book coming out this summer. It's a a, a children's horror novel. So my next couple of books will be children's horror novels. Um, and then I'm always writing nonfiction on my website, oddthingsivescene.com. So I, yeah. I never stop visiting stuff. It's all based on my own travels. It's not just folklore or stuff I've heard. I have to visit it myself. So that that's where, if you want to see nonfiction from me, post-curse objects for the foreseeable future of next year, go to oddthingsivescene.com. I'm always writing about weird stuff I've seen. Where are your books available? Where can our listeners uh, buy your books? Everywhere. Um, you know, you can get them on Amazon. You can buy most. A lot of the indies have them. The indies will order for the, order them for you for sure. They're all kind of publicly available anywhere you buy. The best books. <laughs> as, as an author, what is it that you'd like to see readers of your book, especially this book, uh, Cursed Objects, Strange But True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items? What would you like them to take away after reading your book? I think, and the, I think it's true of all my books, but certainly of Cursed Objects. I want them to walk away with an I didn't know that moment, or even multiple I didn't know that moments. Mm-hmm. Because what I found in my own life, every time I find, learn something that I didn't know, it, it expands my world, right? Like I didn't even know, not even not even I didn't know that, but I didn't even know that was possible to happen in real life. So the, the, you, you have enough of those moments and then your perspective just broadens and broadens and the world gets richer and more interesting yeah. and not boring, like I said earlier in the, in, the, in, the, in the interview. That's what I want. I didn't know that was even possible is what is the reaction I want at least once in the pages of this book. 
what I like about what you're doing is, is you're tying a lot of rich history into these objects. So not only are your readers, in my opinion, getting entertained, they're getting enlightened, but they're also getting an education in, in certain areas that you touch, and, and that's commendable. Thank you, thank you. I think another thing is I would like the people to go visit this stuff. A lot of this stuff is in yeah. museums. A lot of it is legit art, art has legit historical value, mm -hmm. which means they end up in museums. So if it inspires somebody to go see something, I'm super happy with that as well. But but you're scaring the hell out of people by telling them that if they go there, they're they're liable to suffer the curse as well. <laughs> I know some of us are just morbidly inclined, though. You know. I love it. I love it. What does your family think about the work you do? Uh, they're into it. They they usually are around in all my travels. I mean, I've even moved them as part of the book. I wrote a book about Salem, Massachusetts, where we I moved all of them. I have a family of five. Back then, it was four. Wow. We moved. Moved to downtown Salem the uh -huh. entire month of October and just lived that life and so I could write that book. So they like it. They're not as into it as me, probably. Like I don't few people could be as into it as me, I guess, but they put up with it. They let me do it. Put it that way. If you could do something else besides being a, an author and a great author at that, what would you be? Um, I would I'd like to be able to build houses like I feel like if you can build a house yeah. by yourself, you can do pretty much anything. And it, to me, it's a skill that I've always kind of uh, been in full awe of. So I wish I could do that, but my hands are like, you know, you they mean, only hit keyboards. You may not build houses, my friend, but you do build great books. What's your, fi <laughs> what's your final thought for our audience tonight? Uh, final thought for the audience, I would say go down internet holes. Uh, all these stories that I, you know, I'm, I'm a professional writer and traveler, yeah. but like I started out not being a professional writer and traveler. Just go out and see stuff, go out and read about stuff. And, you know, that's the start of so many beautiful experiences even if you don't get to find ghosts. JW, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, and uh, we have to get you back on because we still have other books to talk about uh, that you've written. Uh, I, I'd really like to talk to you about which the magic and mayhem of Halloween in Salem, especially since Halloween is next month. Can you give us, in about one minute, a capsulated version of how you foresee Halloween in Salem? I was just in Salem uh, this weekend, and it's going to be... Pretty much the same. A lot of people. They won't be able to stop tourists. They'll be, but everybody will be in masks. Hopefully, a lot of the bars are shut down. It's yeah. a very constrained Salem from the civic side, but I don't think it's going to stop the tourists. It's really hard to stop a Salem tourist. What's your opinion of the COVID crisis? Ah, uh, I don't even know. Like, I, it's, it's. I just want it to be over. Yeah. <laughs> that's my opinion. Whatever, whatever the, is the true, uh, the truth of the data. Yeah. I just want it to be over. Same here. Once again, many thanks, and once again, let our listeners know how they can find out more about you. And where they can buy your book. Sure. If you go to oddthingsiveseen.com, that's the hub of my entire life. You can, from there, there's links to where you can buy the books. There's information about me. It's all on that site. And that's at www.oddthingsiveseen.com. JW, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. And I look forward to the next time you join us back here in the Exxon to talk more about your books and your travels and what you've seen and what you haven't. Yeah, it'd be great. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Take care of yourself. Happy Halloween, my friend. You too. All right, Exxon Nation, once again, J.W. Walker has been my guest this hour. Great conversation. Entertainment, enlightenment, and history, all in one book. That's rare these days. Once again, the name of the book that we talked about this hour, Cursed Objects, Strange but True Stories of the World's Most Infamous items and the website is www.oddthingsiveseen.com and uh, for my producer Craig no Craig you cannot sell your wedding ring on eBay no one wants it not even your wife apparently 
<sighs> we'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. And you're listening to the Exxon Radio Show around the world on the Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, Exxon Broadcast Network. And if you're listening to us, you're listening to us either on the radio, you can listen to us on Alexa, Siri, and all the other great platforms. Don't go away. We'll be right back. One last call for alcohol, so finish your whiskey or beer. Closing time, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay 